The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. I want to say in this Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you're here and you're here with us uh, all the time, welcome. If you're here visiting, we're so glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, Welcome, and may God's grace and peace be upon you. We are the Springs, our church that's being transformed to the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. And we do that three ways. By gathering in the name of the Father, like we do this morning. By growing to the image of His Son. And by going in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Brett and I are in a sermon series, The Gospel According to Moses, Good News in the Torah. And today, we're in the book of Leviticus. So our text today will be Leviticus 26, 13, uh, 3 through 13. It says this. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshings will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in your land, and I will lie down, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor. And make you fruitful, increase in your number. And I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have, uh, uh, when you will have to move out, move it out and make room for the new. And I will put my dwelling place among you. And I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Let's pray. God, as always, we give you thanks for your word. It is life-giving. And we confess that we cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So today, feed us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to follow, lives and bodies that will obey. And God, today, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of your son, your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I will put my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. This has been a theme within the Torah, within the books of Moses. 
It's been a theme since God made his covenant with, with Israel in Genesis. In Genesis 17, 7 and 8 says this. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give it as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And it continued on after God delivered Israel out of the bondage of Egypt in Exodus 29, 45 and 46, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the, the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This theme of I will walk among you I will be with you. It's a theme that begins in Genesis and runs all the way up through all of the Torah. And to say it simply, this idea of I will be with you is this idea of tabernacle. In other words, God is saying, I will tabernacle with you. This is wonderful. This is wonderful news for Israel. And in a sense, it comes as no real shock to us because it fits our own understanding of who God is, at least our contemporary understanding or our view of who God is as one who's intimate with us, that is personal to us, and is very close in our lives. It fits that view. But for Israel, it does much more than that. Because what I just described to you as a personal God who's intimate and is very close to us is a very contemporary understanding of who God is. Don't get me wrong, this is very good news to Israel. It's wonderful. Yet... It is awful. Awful in this sense, that God will actually choose to come and dwell with his people, that Israel is looking at this and going, wow, God's going to come tabernacle with us, and in a sense, they are full of awe. How could you not be? But in another real sense, it is awful in the way that we usually use this word. It is awful because God is holy. Which means he is set apart. He is different. And to have a God who is so different that a human being, while human beings are made in the image of God, he is completely different and other from us. This is an awful moment. We can kind of relate to this 
It's not a great example, perfect example, but we experience this. And let me tell you a few stories of my own personal experience where we can relate to this awful moment where you're full of awe and wonder and an awfulness about how you interact with someone that's so different. Sometimes we experience this with like celebrities. It's not a great example, but it's a good enough. We experience this in the sense that we're in awe and wonder when we see somebody that we admire or someone that's been, that's, that's very different than us. And at the same time, we're nervous and we're, uh, have a sense of fear because we don't know how to quite act around them. Anybody ever experienced this? A little bit? Been around somebody like this? So when Eli was younger, he played on a basketball team. And one of his teammates' father was an executive for the Oklahoma City Thunder. I didn't find out about this until the end of the season. And I was like, man, you are holding out on me. What is going on? I need some tickets. So he actually called me up on a Wednesday morning and said, hey, my family's not going to go. It's kind of a late night. It's a school night. You want to go to the game? You can have our tickets. I was like, sure. So Kim and Eli and I, there's three tickets. We went to the game. Great game was great. Good seats. After the game... He, the executive comes walking up in a suit. I didn't know. I was like, I didn't know you were going to be here. He goes, no, no, I, I sit up in, the, I sit up in the, the, the suites with Sam Presti. I was like, oh, you really are an executive. And then he's like, hey, you want to go down to the court? I'm like, yeah, we'd love to. So we go down and we sit underneath the basket and where the o- Oklahoma City Thunder players come out. And this is when Westbrook was there. Westbrook walks out, kind of waves over at our friend. And then Kevin Durant walks out. And he walks kind of right in front of us to his family who's sitting down by courtside as well. And he kind of looks over and waves, kind of wave. Then all of a sudden, Kevin Durant is talking to his family. He turns and he looks right in my direction. He starts walking right towards me. So I stood up. Now you know that feeling, right? You may not appreciate Kevin Durant, but you know that feeling of like awe, but this is awful. Like, what am I going to say? And I kid you not, Kevin Durant walks up to me in his full seven foot, and he puts out his hand, and he goes, hi, I'm Kevin. Hi, Kevin. I'm Ben. Like, who does that? Of course I know who you are. He walks up and introduces himself to me as Kevin. That's about as intimate, as personable as you can get. We took pictures. I tried to play it cool. I was like, hey, how you feeling? He's like, I'm feeling good. I was like, good game. He's like, thanks. I'm like, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) He's very personal, very intimate in that interaction. Had another experience with a very famous person. Kim and I, early in our marriage, were at uh, the Nike employee store in Beaverton, Oregon. We used to live in Portland uh, when we first got married. And there's an employee store. You got to get special passes. One of Kim's good friends worked for Nike. So we got a pass and we're in there. And all of a sudden, my phone is like blowing up. And Kim's calling me. And finally, I pick up the phone. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you'll never guess who's standing next to me. I was like, who? Actually, she'd walked around because she's not going to talk. She's like, I was looking at these shoes, and Mia Hamm comes standing right next to me. If you don't know who Mia Hamm is, she's arguably one of the greatest 
uh, female soccer players that's ever played. She was, played for the U.S. national team. It was Kim's childhood hero. Mia Hamm comes right up and looks at the same shoe as Kim. I go, what did you do? Did you talk to her? She goes, no, I just turned around and walked away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, that's not going to be me. I'm, talk to, I'm talking to Mia Hamm. So I, she comes walking by. I find her in the store, and she comes walking by. And at this point, they had just won an Olympic gold medal. We'd watched them play. So she walks by, and I say, congratulations, Mia. And I kind of patted her on the back. And she went, thanks. <laughs> and I went, what did I do? What do I do? It was an awful moment. So do you see how, on the one hand, this awful, you're full of awe, this intimate moment with Kevin Durant, and then without even thinking about it, really, it was this awful, horrible moment. I was like the creepy guy. <laughs> no comment, Steve. Don't even do it. I wasn't even trying to be. But this is the experience for, for Israel. It is an awful moment. And so chapters 1 through 7 are all about, in Leviticus, they're all about how are we going to approach this God in tabernacle? How are you going to approach a holy God? And we can relate to this somehow. Did anybody notice or take note, get up early to see the, the coronation of King Charles yesterday? Anybody do that? No. I just happened to turn the TV on, the big pomp and circumstance. But there are still rules and rituals, and I don't know, I assume it's the same for the king, but this, there are rules and rituals for how you approach the queen. You've probably heard some of these. So here are some of the do's. Here's things you have to do if you come into the presence of the queen. Or the king. You have to, if you're a woman, you have to curtsy. Or a man, you have to bow. It's just a head bow. You must bow. You have to address the king or queen as your majesty. You have to be early if you're to meet the king or queen. You don't show up after. They've already shown up. You don't talk to the queen unless she speaks to you. You don't sit until the queen sits. And you don't begin eating until the queen begins eating. Now, when I say it like that around the queen, if you were in the queen, you'd be like, or curtsy, or don't talk. I mean, you would be feeling this like, oh, I can't believe it's the queen. And at the same time, like, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. And there's don'ts. So, the first don't is you do not touch the queen. You do not leave an event before the king or queen leaves the event. You do not turn your back on the queen. So if you're excused from the room, you walk out backwards. You don't turn around and turn your back to the queen. 
you don't take a picture with the queen. Especially when you're visiting with her in her home. You don't ask personal questions. You keep it very surface level with the queen. And don't get carried away. It's the general rule. Because if you do or don't do any of these things, it offends her holiness. And not that the queen is holy like God is holy, but holiness in the sense of the true word. When we think of holiness, we often think of like a character or sinless, and that's true. But holiness simply means set apart. And in order to maintain the queen or king's set-apartness, she is not a commoner. These rules must be followed. Otherwise, she just becomes like everyone else, and she is not. So when you approach God, God is completely in a holy other, different. You must maintain that. Because while you cannot bring God and make him common, you can't offend that separateness and holiness. So this is what it looks like for Israel. Burnt offerings, bulls and goats and sheep and birds without defect. There's grain offerings to bring your best flour. There's fellowship offerings, so it could be any animal from your herd as long as it has no defect. There's sin and guilt offerings for anyone who has sinned. And by the way, Leviticus says this over and over again. For anyone who has sinned unintentionally. It's not even emphasizing intentionally. It's just in case you've sinned unintentionally. And then over and over again, it says all this is to be a food offering and an aroma pleasing to God. This is how Leviticus says you are to approach God. But then in chapter 10, it all goes wrong. Chapters 1 through 7 and then 8 and 9 are setting up what happens in chapter 10. Well, all goes wrong with Aaron's sons, Aaron the priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and it says this, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out of, came from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. This is a big turn in the book of Leviticus. This one story, and it didn't even seem that significant what happened. Unauthorized fire. And they were consumed by fire from heaven. And Moses reminded Aaron and the people, I will be holy, set apart from the people. And among the people, I will be honored. 
See, Leviticus is about this. It's about the complexity of this God who will tabernacle with them. It is a wonderful thing for God to come and be among his people. It is also an awful thing, and it's a completely complex thing. And if you don't believe that, people in this room who are married can somehow understand this. It is a wonderful thing to marry my wife, Kim. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift. But when you get married in this great thing, hey, you're going to be together, you're going to live together. But then what happens and I expect some amens out of the men in this room, is that there are all kinds of expectations that she didn't know she had and I didn't know she had until I broke them. Am I right? Amen? Maybe the most amens that guys have ever given me. And all the women are mad at me right now. But that's okay. So let me give you an example. When my wife and I first got married, Kim was a flight attendant. She was getting up at like 3 in the morning to catch early flights. I was waiting tables, so I was up till like getting home at like 1 a.m. So we had, uh, she was already asleep when I came home, and we had a double bed. Not a very big bed, but a double bed. And I walk in, and I'm trying not to wake her up, and she's asleep, and she's turned like this in, in the bed on her side. And I get in the other side of the bed, and I'm trying not to wake her up, and, I, 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 and I'm like this. And our, apparently our butts were barely touching and I'm about to fall asleep. And all I hear is, why are we touching? <laughs> it was an awful moment. And I scooted over, and she goes, thank you. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Chapter 10 is that moment. Chapter 10 is about a shock value. It's intended to be shocking. It's about, wow, that could happen? That could happen in the presence of God? This is surprising. It's a wake-up call that this God is wild and cannot be tamed. He's set apart. He is different from us. And while God's presence is wonderful, it is extremely complicated all at the same time. Leviticus is a reminder that while we proclaim that God is like us and can relate to us, Leviticus is a reminder that God is not us. He is different than us. And that is a reminder. It shows that while God has come to live with his people, to tabernacle with his people, his people are very different than God is. And the chance for offense or trespass of that difference is so big that not even the preparations to enter into his presence, they cannot prepare you for what you and I and Israel is about to encounter 
when you experience the presence of God. They cannot prepare you. So this causes Israel to rethink how they're going to approach God. So the next few chapters are we get the purity codes. And the purity codes are about how do we make ourselves set apart to somehow be clean enough to enter into the presence of God. See, all this about bodily cleanliness and food and, and sexual relations and all these things about how to be pure and clean. But here's the point I want to make. Be up on the slide. No matter what Israel does, no matter what you and I do, it cannot remove the offense. It cannot bridge the gap between us and a holy God. It cannot prevent the offenses that separate us from God. No matter what we do, He is holy other. It can't remove those offenses. As hard as we try, it can't even, it can't even stop those offenses from happening. So something needs to be done to redress what Nahab and Abihu did. Nabab and Abihu did wrong. So then when we get to chapter 16, 1 and 2, and then 20 through 22, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement. And after Aaron does all of these rituals that he has to do to come into the holy place, this is when Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins put them on the goat's head. And when Herod has finished making atonement, he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it into the wilderness. This is the day of atonement. This is scapegoating. This is where God makes a way for the sin and offenses of Nabab and Abihu to be taken away. It is through this ritual and practice of laying on all the sins of all whole community. By the way, for Israel, this idea of, of individual sin, while individuals can sin, it doesn't matter if an individual sins. If an individual sins, the whole community is guilty. It's a communal thing. But they lay the whole sins on this goat and take them outside of the gates, take them outside of the area and send them out into the wilderness and the sins are atoned for, for the whole community. One of the things that strikes us about Leviticus that kind of 
say, goes against our Protestant senses is how much law, which is the book of the law, and how much ritual there is. But this is actually good news in the book of Leviticus. And it's good news, the ritual is actually good news. Because what God has physically made available in the Exodus story, by physically leading them out of bondage into freedom from the oppression and the enslavement to Pharaoh, God now visibly and physically gives this ritual that not only symbolizes what God does, but enacts it so that the people can experience the forgiveness of God. The sin just walked out of the door and we're made holy by a holy God. Rituals are important. And we have several that I think that are still important in the church that we shouldn't just cast aside as just simply rituals. But rituals are the thing that allows us to embody and experience God. In the same way, let me give you an example. When we pledge allegiance, when Americans pledge allegiance, you put your hand over your heart and you pledge allegiance. Often I bring up in my cultural anthropology class, what exactly are we pledging allegiance to? I don't mean to question the United States. That's not what I'm doing. But are we, are we pledging allegiance to a piece of land? To our leaders, a government? To a piece of paper and a constitution? Is it a people? Is it an idea? What is it? It's kind of this intangible thing, but is made real in your life. The United States of America, whatever it is, is real. And it's made real through some of the rituals and embodiments that we do. You experience it. In the same way, rituals in the church are important. So baptism, while it's symbolic of something, it's a real ritual where we get to physically experience the grace of God. It's what's called a sacrament or a means of grace. Because we believe that in baptism, that sins are forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That water's not magic. It's not the chlorine that cleans you. There's nothing magical happen in my baptism. But somehow we believe that when we go into the water and come out, something happens. Just like when the goat walks out, something happens. The church believes that when we take communion at these tables, that it is a memorial, but it's more than that. That the church has often believed that we experience the body and blood of Jesus. That these physical elements, that we experience this. And we also talk this way. This is the table of the Lord. Welcome to the table of the Lord. He's the host. You encounter Jesus in the bread and the cup. Or something we did today, the confession and pardon. Which you may just think, ah, that's something we just go through. We do every once in a while. But... Brent and I have talked about this. We're intentional about this. It's a way that we confess communally, as Israel does. Confess, yeah, we are not you, God. We turned our back. We didn't nod. We wanted to take a picture. All those things that offends that honor and holiness. God, we have offended that. And Brett does a beautiful job, while he is not the one offering pardon, he does a beautiful job of standing in this priestly role 
And after we confess, he says, may the almighty God who sent his son into the world to save sinners give you pardon and peace. And I need to tell you that I need to hear that. God's people need to hear they are pardoned and that God offers them their peace. But it doesn't end there. After they make the sacrifices and the scapegoating, in Leviticus 26, 45, it ends with this. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their, unfa- their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will rem- remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while they are, lie desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they've rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. So it goes through this whole thing where it says, if they keep my laws and decrees, they confess their sins, I will remember my covenant. But then he has this turn. And he says, yet... I remember hearing an Old, Old Testament scholar talking about the word yet. And he did. He said it like this. Whenever you heard the word yet, he yell it out like that. Yet, whenever you hear that word, good news is about to happen. In spite of all what they do, he says, yet, I will not reject them. I will not break my covenant with them. I will tabernacle with them and I will be their God. John 1 says this. The word of God who is holy and created the whole world was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the great yet of God. So even though you and I are so different than God, God says, yet I will walk with you. Even though you offend my honor, yet I will not abandon you. Even when you sin against me, yet I will be your scapegoat and forgive you. Even though you cannot be clean enough, yet I will make you clean. Even though you break covenant with me, yet 
never break covenant with you. And even though there is no way you should ever be able to stand in my presence, yet I will be with you. That is the good news of Leviticus. If you want to be in the presence of a God who you have no right to stand in front of, if you want to receive these rituals of baptism, of confession, of pardon, of experiencing Jesus who is our scapegoat, Experiencing the salvation, the same salvation that came when Israel experienced it out of Egypt. God invites us. He invites us to experience that with Jesus, the great yet of God. Let's stand and sing.